Thank you for joining us for today's message. We believe God is going to do great things in your life. If God has impacted you through this ministry, partner with us in reaching others. Go to summitsa.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. We've been in a series called Life-Changing Encounters with Jesus. And we talked about when people had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus, they didn't go home and say, I had an interesting conversation today, honey. I met somebody interesting at the mall. It was life and death, heaven and hell. You didn't meet Jesus and walk away unmoved or unchallenged or unchanged. I mean, something nuclear happened. So I'm going to ask you to go to John chapter 3, verse 22. While you're turning, two business executives met for lunch, and uh, one of them named Gene said, how's your health, Bill? Well, he said, I feel great. My ulcers are gone. I don't have a care in the world. And Gene said, well, man, that's great. How did that happen? It says, well, my doctor told me that my ulcers were caused from worry. So I hired a professional worrier. Whenever something worrisome comes up, I turn it over to him, and he does all my worrying for me. And Gene said, wow, I'd love to hire somebody like that. How much does a guy like that charge? And Ed said, $100,000. Gene freaked out. He said, how in the world can you afford $100,000? Ed said, I don't know. I'll let him worry about it. (laughs) Now, this morning, you let somebody else worry about it. Let Jesus worry about it for you, okay? Just chill for a little bit. John chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. After this, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John, that's John the Baptist, was also baptizing near Salem because water was abundant. They didn't sprinkle, they immersed. They put them down into the water. Death, burial, and resurrection. Well, people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew. So they came to John and said, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, he's speaking of Jesus, to whom you testified, he's baptizing, and everybody's joining his church. Everybody's going to him. And John said, nobody can receive anything except what has been given to them from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And that man, the friend of the bridegroom, stands at the door and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase I must decrease. Well, what kind of an effect did Jesus have on John the Baptist? We've looked at uh, a leper. We've looked at a blind man. We've looked at different people, Zacchaeus hiding in a tree. And now we come to John the Baptist. And John's disciples are upset because John's ratings are going down. For some time, he's the hottest guy on the preaching circuit. But the latest Nielsen ratings confirm he's in danger of his status as a primetime player. And folks, the truth about all of us is we live in a very trendy world in America with who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. And people are preoccupied with that kind of thing. 
So John's disciples, that is his staff, they're playing a game we could call basking in reflected glory. John the Baptist had been the primetime player, and if his status goes down, guess who else's status goes down? His staff, his team, his disciples. So their joy is dependent on his status. They need him to be the big dog. And when you're the big dog, or you're associated with the big dog, you got status. Why do you think people hang around celebrities and sports stars or whatever? They're like groupies because it gives me status. So you're important and everybody else's position is determined by how they stack up next to the big dog. Now, John the Baptist's entire ministry was about letting go right from the beginning. So we're going to, this morning, challenge you about letting go. Anybody see the movie for kids, Frozen? Let it go, let it go. Yeah, well, I'm going to challenge you to let it go. We're going to look at a guy who did. Now, it's been over 400 years since the last prophet spoke God's word to the people of Israel. The people tried hard to hold on to their faith, but the echo of God's promise of a coming Messiah in the book of Genesis is growing very, very faint. Now, there are people who are also under Roman occupation. But right now, God is about to flood the dark world of Israel with His light. And the story begins with a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And Scripture says they were well advanced in years and had no child. That means they were old, like some of you, kind of old. And you don't think anything exciting can happen, and you could be in for a big surprise. They were. Zechariah. He found himself in the temple one day. He's doing his priestly duties, and an angel appears to him and says, Zach, the prayer you prayed for many years is about to be answered. Don't quit praying. It may take a long time. Don't quit. These suckers are already old, and they've been praying for years, and it's not looking good about having a baby. And anybody that's had babies know how babies are made. So it's not looking good. Could you get an amen on that? Not looking good. Why do you read the Bible so sterile? I mean, this is almost fun to kind of read. So Zach's just doing his old duties in there, looking at Social Security, and the angel says, Zach, come on, you're going to get your prayer answered, oh boy. You and Elizabeth are going to have a child, and you need to know that from the very outset, you're going to have to let him go. This child for whom you prayed and believed and hoped for is not going to follow in your footsteps. That child will never give you grandchildren. He won't support you in your old age. And when you have him, you're going to have to let him go. Now, how'd you like to have that as an introduction? Later on in the story, when Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, meets Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is also pregnant with the Messiah, the Bible says that John leaped in his mother's womb. So from the very beginning, John's joy is all about Jesus. So John grew up, started his ministry, things are looking good. Now he had to take a vow, think about letting go. He had to take a vow of a normal life. He couldn't cut his hair, couldn't drink wine, had to wear strange clothes, camel hair. Now if any of you remember with me Sonny Bono and, and Sonny and Cher, 
You remember that wild outfit? That sort of looked like John the Baptist. Now, that might go well in New York or Minneapolis where temperatures go below zero, but in the heat of a desert, that is a weird thing to wear. So he could only eat certain foods, locusts and honey. He lived in isolation rather than community. He had to let go of ever wanting to get married, have a family, and all the dreams any normal male would have had. He had to let go of his life. And amazing? Oh, Johnny did. He did it. And in the midst of all this letting go, God's going to ask him for one more thing. And it happened like this. So day after day, John the Baptist did what he was called to do. He's by the banks of the Jordan River. He preached repentance. Then he baptized those who responded to his message. And one day as he was baptizing, he looks up and he sees Jesus. And again, just like he had done in his mother's womb, his heart leaped for joy. And he knew in that instant that all of his letting go that he had been asked by God to do was suddenly worth it. He's thinking about, this is why I came. This is my purpose. This was his joy. This was the one about whom his ministry was a forerunner. He was the one that was going to herald the coming of Messiah, and now he's here. And now he walked with Jesus into the Jordan River. He dipped the Son of God into the muddy water. And he heard God's voice say out of heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, if you've been a Christian and you haven't been baptized, shame on you. If Jesus Christ is our example and he was water baptized, you ought to be baptized. If you've accepted Jesus, the very first thing they did was follow him in death, burial, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit cuts off that old man spiritually gives you a new, a new nature and a new heart. After you, It's a believer baptism. You don't get baptized to be saved, but it's for a believer who's accepted Jesus. And God does a spiritual operation in your heart, a little spiritual circumcision. So if you haven't done that, you should immediately, we provide you some clothes and, and the opportunity, and they won't be muddy water. We'll give you clean water, and we'll even heat it for you with towels. So for a while, there's two ministries are operating side by side, Jesus and John the Baptist. Then a strange thing happens. It's kind of slow at first, then it began to be more obvious. People stopped coming to John the Baptist, and now they're all going to Jesus. And the one more thing God asked of John was, it's now time to give up even your ministry. And the disciples of John are not liking this at all. John the Baptist was the big dog. He was the first prophet in 400 years. And now this nobody, this carpenter, this Jesus, he's getting bigger than John and growing and growing. And if John doesn't do something about it, he's going to be a has-been and a loser. And I think one of the hardest things in life, if you're going to get joy from God, is to learn to let go. I mean, really, when you're a parent, we think the hardest thing is raising the kid, taking care of your kid, watching over your kid. But I really think the hardest part is letting them go. I'm a parent and a grandparent, and I don't like letting go. Anybody with me? I I mean, I'm very possessive. I am. I'm just trying to tell you my natural tendencies as well to understand I know they're married with children. I know, I know. But to me, they're still my little girls. They'll always be. And I want to reign and rule in their affairs. <laughs> and some of our single, single moms and single gals in here, I feel the very same way about you. Very possessive. I want to say, no, nah, this guy's a dog. Get rid of him. Let me find you somebody fit for you, worthy of you. 
I really mean that. It's, it's, it's sort of the daddy thing, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I can't control your life. I know better than that, but I want to. <laughs> and ask my girls. Now, it's a, now, the only person I can't control is my wife, but other than that, I do pretty good. You heard about a guy, he fell off the cliff. It's an old story. He's falling to his death. He reaches out, and he's able to grab a branch sticking out from the face of the cliff, and he's just hanging there for life, and he's yelling, anybody up there? And a voice comes back and says, yes. The man said, who is it? The voice said, it's God. The man said, wonderful. Please save me. The voice says, okay. The guy says, what should I do? The voice says, let go of the branch. There is a pause. And the man said, anybody else up there? Because it's hard to let go. Well, that's what's happening for John the Baptist and his disciples. He's been the big deal. And what made them feel important is they got to hang out with the big deal, the big dog, John the Baptist. But the question now is, does John have enough guts and faith to trust go, trust God and let go of his importance? I think we all clutch desperately to our little attempts to make our lives valuable and important. We clutch onto our money, our position within an organization. We, we clutch onto our power or over our children. And Jesus comes along with the good news of the kingdom that you can be saved. And we say, what should we do? And he says, repent. And a good deal of this business of repenting has to do with letting go of stuff. Let me pause and ask you, what is it you need to finally let go of? Maybe you're in a relationship. You've been trying to control it or manipulate it, or you've been doing it in a way that doesn't respect the freedom of the other person, and you need to let go. Or you're in a relationship with somebody that's toxic, that pushes you to cross boundaries you don't want to cross, and they're not good for you, and God may say, will you let it go? Will you give up trying to control? Now, it scares people. It scares all of us to let go of the branch. And I remember when we had a high-paying job, a low-interest mortgage on Skidaway Island on an intercoastal waterway with 24-hour guards, gated community, flying airplanes. Life was good. And God spoke. I said, will you let it go? And I said immediately, no. No, no, I sound like a two-year-old. No, no, no. And for three years, I said no. And so we're here today, good or bad, whatever it is, we are here today because I decided, okay, I'll let go of the branch, I'll let go of my security, and I'll give it a shot. And boy, I just wanted you to know I feel like you. It's difficult to let go of things that bring us comfort or pleasure. Even some sort of revenge or bitterness makes us feel good. There's a kick to it, or you'd let it go. And God's going to say, if you're going to do anything supernatural, if I'm going to do anything significant for you in your life, when I tell you to let go, you're going to have to let go. And it won't be to hurt you. It'll be to help you. But it'll scare you. So join the club. Come on in. Maybe it's a habit. It's been part of your life for a long time, and you need to let it go. Don't wait until divorce to get help for a problem you have. Get help now. Let it go. 
Maybe you've been holding on to money to give you security or a sense of importance. Maybe it's where you live. And maybe Jesus is speaking to you about letting go of your death grip on money. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And I don't want my heart and a stinking bunch of money that can come and go. God's got no trouble getting you money. It's getting money through you that's the problem. And if he can't get it through you, he's not going to bring it to you. And so if you don't learn that, your heart's never going to go where your money doesn't go. Never. And if a man stops loving his wife, his money's going to go to a mistress. But it's going to go where his, it's going to go where his treasure is. What do you treasure? Security? Yeah. Well, I, good luck on that one. And so the theme of letting go is even rooted in God himself. In his very essence, God loves to give. Take a look at John 4, verse 34. And Jesus speaks as one who has let go of power and glory, even heaven, in order to come to earth and become a human. He has to let go of everything, including his life. Philippians 2 said he he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. So in John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food, that is what feeds me, my real joy, is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. So what delights Jesus is not doing his own will, it's doing the Father's will. And remember, he said, not my will, thy will be done. He fussed and argued like I did, but at the end of the day, I said, okay, I'm going to find out if it's really true, you have a good plan for my life. It doesn't look that good to me from this point, but then I could never have seen you or where we are today, or it would have been easy. But I didn't see that up front, and you won't either. You just have to let it go by faith and trust God. The son's delight is to let go of his will and accomplish the will of the father. He goes on to say the father loves the son. And how does he show his love? He's placed everything into his hands. So even the father doesn't clutch on to power or authority, but gives all power and authority to his son. Verse 34. He whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God. So, in other words, Jesus speaks the words of the Father. The Father gives the Spirit without measure to the Son. But the Spirit's response is not to seek glory for Himself, but to glorify the Son and draw attention to the Son, who is Jesus. So, even in the Trinity of God, letting go of power and status out of love for each other is deeply embedded in who God is. It's just his nature to let go and give. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He daily loads us with benefits. It's it's amazing. I mean, God's a lot nicer than church makes him out to be. He really is. And so, you know, I'm a soft touch for my kids. Even when my kids are being nasty, my wife will get on me. I'm I'm a soft touch. And a lot of daddies are. And I'm not going to stop being a soft touch because they need a little bit of a soft touch. And I'm going to tell you, Father God's pretty good as a soft touch. He's not near as mean as some preachers. And he's a lot more patient than us. Amen. I got some brothers need help too. Okay. (laughs) I'm with you, boys. I just want you to have confidence that God doesn't have a one line, you're done. He's very patient and very kind, and sometimes in my more, I think back over my 73 years of life, in my most nasty moments of being not a good Christian or bad attitude or whatever, he did the most for me. 
just amazing to me. Like, I sure don't deserve this. Boy, if we had to live on what we deserve in the kingdom of God, we'd all be broke. Everybody in this room. I was in a class one time. This is after graduating from the University of South Carolina, and later I got saved in my 30s, and I went to a Christian university. God help me. And when you take a test, they, they ask somebody to lead in prayer. And I'm thinking, it's a bit late now. Yeah. And I remember this idiot in the class got up and prayed this sanctimonious prayer. Lord, I, I'm paraphrasing. Lord, just give us today on this exam what we deserve. The lowest scores ever scored were scored in that class that day. And I said to him, if you ever pray that prayer again, I will hit you in the mouth in Jesus' name. <laughs> Never say to God, give me what I deserve. No, no, no. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. That's what makes him so attractive to all of us. So this crisis comes for John and the disciples, and he has to give up his ministry. And in verse 26 of John 3, John's disciples are saying to him, how come everybody's going over to Jesus? You got to do something. And John's response was, nobody can receive anything except what they've been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses. Don't you remember I told you I'm not the Messiah? He is, but I've been sent ahead of him. So John the Baptist has a long history of learning to let go. And when it was important as it is now, he was able to do it again. He got he refused to get caught up in that deadly game of comparison that the disciples were playing. Who's up? Who's down? Who's the best? Whatever. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. He knew what his gifts were, and he knew what they weren't. And comparison is a deadly game, folks. It goes on in the church all the time, and certainly in the world. The danger is that no matter who you do it with, eventually there's always somebody prettier, thinner, smarter, faster, more popular, or higher up on the corporate ladder than you. Always. There's always somebody with more. And the danger of comparison is that we start looking to other people to find our value and determining our value by how we stack up with other people. And when you compare yourself to others, you're using the wrong measuring stick. That is a diagnostic tool that God never uses. He never compares you to anybody else. So somebody else's life and gifts are irrelevant to who I am, who I'm made to be, and what I'm supposed to do. Quit looking at other people and what they do. It's simply not your gift. It's not your song. Don't try to sing it. Just be fully the best you you can be. That's, a, that's liberty. And in church, they always try to clone you. They make us cookie cutters, look like we do, dress like we do, talk like we do, agree like we do. So you have groups aligned around different things, and you can tell what group they're from by how they look, how they dress. I want to confuse everybody. I, I hope you will too. Help me. I mean, I'll get up here in Bermuda shorts and preach, and then sometimes a three-piece suit, but sometimes, like you, I, I don't want anybody to be able to fit. Just be you. Just be you. You know, I got, I've got lots of clothes from traveling all over the world, and now we don't even need them, but I can't just let them rot. And none of my security team is small enough to get, get in them, so I can't give them to them. <laughs> I'll probably get beat up after this. 
So something else comparison robs you of, and what John the Baptist was in danger of losing if he listened to his disciples was the joy God had put in him and created especially for him and being able to be the forerunner to announce the coming of Messiah. What a position of honor that he had been given. And there would have to be a time he has to step off the playing field and let Jesus take the lead. And that's hard for some people. So you and I are in danger of forfeiting the joy God has for us when we're trying to chase somebody else's joy. And I can't do it. Then the joy God has for us, we never realize it. We never unfold it. It never happens. When you compare yourself, you always end up devaluing somebody in order to elevate somebody else. So for 400 years, Israel had waited. Jesus, the Messiah, finally comes. Oh, no. He comes as a servant. And they didn't expect that, comparing him to other great leaders that had come before him. And because he didn't come the way they thought he should come, he didn't look the way they thought he should look, he didn't act the way they thought he should act, they missed him and rejected Messiah. I think a lot of you think Jesus is going to come as a white, Anglo, blue-eyed, Caucasian American. Good luck with that. That's not how he's going. And so everybody wants him to come their way or they reject it. He better come Baptist. He better come Assembly of God. He better come Catholic and bring a lot of candles. He better come... You, you get the picture. Let me tell you, when he shows up, he shows up in combat boots and he's going to come just like he is. Just take it or leave it. That's how he's going to come. He's not going to fit your little mold and your little description. I doubt he'll come as a Republican or a Democrat. But he'll, he, if he gets near you, you talk about a whole lot of shaking going on, you'll find out real quick. Now, when you compare yourself to somebody else, somebody always loses. Hey, comparison shopping is good. That's a good thing. You put two similar items side by side and compare them. And you can do that with vegetables and furniture and shoes and cars, but you don't do that with people. Comparison with people puts a value on a soul that God has already declared priceless. That's how valuable you are. Don't you dare do that comparing. And, and not only with other people, for yourself, because you'll always feel inferior or insecure. You know, comparison is deadly because it always looks for flaws and always hopes somebody will do less than their best so I can look good. That's awful. If you're, if you're not going to measure yourself by comparing who you are with other people, you have to get two things infallibly straight. Number one, who God is in your life. Number two, who God has made you to be. And when you got that down, you can't get intimidated, manipulated, or patronized or controlled by outside people or forces. I know who God is in my life, and I know who He's made me to be, and I know who He's not made me to be. Verse 28, John said, you yourself, boys, are my witnesses. I told you I'm not Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. In other words, I know who the Messiah is, and it ain't me. Those are liberating words. It's helpful occasionally for some of you to remind yourself, I'm not the Messiah. I can't save the world. That's not my job. <sighs> Take a deep breath. That's good to know. Verse 29, John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. That doesn't make sense to us in our culture. Let me, let me break it down for you. At a wedding in Jesus' day, 
there was a special person known as the friend of the groom. He was in charge of wedding arrangements and sending out the invitations, and he would accompany the groom. Then he had a last task. Weddings in those days went on sometimes for weeks. Oh, yeah, a long time. And because of it, on the final night of the wedding ceremony, the ceremony is now over, the friend of the groom would stand guard over the tent where the bride waited for the groom. He would stand by the flap and make sure nobody came to get the bride. Now it's dark. You couldn't see another person's face. And when the groom came, the friend of the groom would hear his voice. And he knew his voice because he was friends with the groom. Then the friend would stand aside, get out of the way. The groom would go into the tent and have the joy of claiming his bride. So the friend of the groom had another kind of joy, the joy of serving his friend. Brought him joy. John the Baptist says, that's my joy. I send out the invitations. Come to Jesus, Messiah. And John says to the disciples, I serve the groom. That's Jesus. He's my friend. Now he's come, and I've heard his voice. So Jesus is now claiming his bride. The church and the people are his, John said, not mine. The joy of the groom belongs to him. Then John says, don't think this is painful for me. Don't be under that illusion. I have great joy. My joy is the joy of being the friend of the groom. And then he says, my joy is complete. Every time another person goes to Jesus, it's the bride with the groom. And that completes my joy. If I were to try to seize his joy, I'd end up with no joy at all. So he tells his boys, stop messing with my joy. I've got joy knowing I was the forerunner, that I herald his coming. I announced his coming. I got to see his coming. And now he's here. And now I got to step back and let him take the lead. That's a, that's a good thing. But he, everybody wouldn't do it, but he did it. So God holds out a certain joy for all of his kids, all of you. There's the joy of a singer. Somebody on the platform sings, and they're gifted, and you can see their joy knowing, I love what I'm doing. I'm good at what I'm doing. I love the pleasure it gives everybody. I have joy. And then, there, by the way, when Austin gets up here and has us all singing, and sometimes he'll do the mic that way, that's where we sing and he doesn't sing, then it's terrible. Because <laughs> when he stopped, I think I'm doing good, and then when the amplification of his voice drops out in the team. We suck. It's awful. I thought I was good till I heard myself. And I thought, I'm awful. That's terrible. Keep Austin, sing, baby. Sing. We, I was under the illusion I was good, but I'm facing reality. I'm going to let go of that notion. I'm not any good. So there's a joy of the singer, then there's a joy of a listener who gets blessed and enriched, watching somebody do their thing and do it well and bless you, uh, whether we're being entertained uh, in a sporting arena or with uh, a show of some kind or even in church, there's a joy of being able to receive somebody else's gift. So we receive their gift, and it gives us joy. And the way to lose that joy is to envy the joy that belongs to somebody else. Envy the singer. Wish you were on the platform instead of her. Compare your gifts to hers. Then you start feeling that sinking sensation. See, live a life of comparison or competition, and you end up with no joy at all. If I tried to compare myself to T.D. Jakes or Billy Graham or any of the great people today, I'd think, yeah, I might as well quit. Well, wait a minute. 
I've got a particular gift and a particular type of people. So you're those kind of people. You know that. <laughs> these, sta- these strange, irreligious, irrelevant people. Uh, I'm going to send you to them. Because <laughs> you won't fit in a box, and they probably won't either. So I've got to have somebody for them. So God's got somebody for everybody. And nobody is for everybody, so I just have to celebrate my own joy about what he made me to be, and, what, and I love what I do, and I love being who I am, and I, I love other people. I love to sit under T.D. Jakes or other people who are fantastic and be blessed by their gift, but I don't envy their joy. I love it, but I, wanted, I don't want to miss my own. So God has designed every one of us to know the joy of being a teacher, a helper, an encourager, a designer, whatever it is, and when you find it and offer it, you know joy for yourself. So God has made us to know the joy of receiving and celebrating the gifts of others around us. And if you offer your gifts, let them go. And be sure you receive the gifts that others offer, and it brings joy to you. And if you don't do that, and you wish you had the joy belongs to somebody else, and you envy, then all of a sudden you got no joy at all. And that's a pitiful way to live. One last verse, verse 30. John says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. If there's ever one verse you can take away on encountering Jesus, I recommend this is it. And this is not John speaking fatalistic, martyrdom, I guess I'll eat worms, I guess my life didn't really count. That's not what's going on here. This is not devaluing who God made him to be. It's a statement of joy. This is the joy of the friend of the bridegroom who realizes the bride, the church, has now received her groom, Jesus, and that John had a big part in it. Even Jesus says of John, of those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty good resume. Pretty good resume. God says, he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, do you know why December the 25th was chosen as a date for Christmas? Please, it is not because anybody thought that was actually the day he was born. Now, that ought to be a wake up for some of you. In fact, there was never a time in the history of the church when anybody thought that was the day Jesus was born. He, the day was chosen because you have a summer solstice and a winter solstice. I'm going to throw some of my meteorology on you. If Paul Morales is here, he'll, he'll back me up. And so let me see if I can make it real simple. December the 25th, the light starts to increase every day a little more and a little more as we head to summer, right? So they chose that date as a reminder. That was the time when the light of the world had arrived. Now think about it. They had no electric lights, not many sources of light, maybe a candle. So they marked the increase of light in the world as the date of Christ's birth. The light of the world has come. Now, let's go the other way. Does anybody know why the traditional church calendar celebrates John the Baptist's birthday on June 24th. Well, that's the other solstice. That's when days start to get shorter, and it starts getting darker earlier and earlier. That's when light begins to lessen. So every year when you follow the calendar, it's a permanent reminder of this verse. He must increase, I must decrease. And so for each of us, the result of an encounter we have with Jesus, we're all left with this decision. Will we allow Jesus to become greater and ourselves to become less? And the transformation in you and me comes as we say yes to Jesus becoming more in me. And as that happens, there's great joy encountering Jesus 
as we become less and he becomes more. So either we pray he must increase and I must decrease, or we pray just the opposite. And remember, it's about being willing to let go. Thanks for joining us today, and may God richly bless you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.